Good morning, and if I haven't met you yet, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, glad to be worshiping with you all on this beautiful Sunday morning. Our scripture passage today is uh, from Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. So Luke 10, 38 to 42. So Luke 10, starting in verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would uh, speak to us this morning. Lord, we pray that you would quiet all the voices in our mind, the things that distract us, weigh us down. And we pray that your spirit would speak into each and every one of our hearts to show us Christ and show us his supremacy. And that his words would be words of life that are actually words that create in us something new and beautiful as you build us up to look more like Jesus. So we pray that you would do that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, probably uh, many of you know, last week, uh, we, me and uh, our oldest daughter, Molly, were gone. We'd flown to Colorado over the weekend for a gymnastics meet. Uh, and Colorado is where I grew up and have uh, both my sisters live there. And we also got a ski on last Saturday, which was a treat. Now, I love Utah, and we have no plans of ever leaving, but there's something about being in the mountains in Colorado that just feels like home in a way that it doesn't here in Utah. And one of the most famous mountains in Colorado is Pikes Peak. It kind of overlooks Colorado Springs and it sits some 14,115 feet above sea level. Uh, So for reference, the, the mountains behind us, the two tallest, One's uh, Lone Peak and Twin Peaks are in the low 11,000 foot range. So this is 14,000 some feet. And the classic hike up Pikes Peak starts in Manitou Springs at the base and goes about 13 and a half miles up and about 7,500 feet in elevation gain. Uh, So basically it's like if you do the round trip, it's like a marathon with seven and a half thousand feet of upward climbing. And 20-some years ago, uh, my sister and I hiked it. And getting to the top uh, was incredibly rewarding, although we didn't realize that the hardest part is actually the 13 and a half miles all the way back down when you just want to get to the car. But Pikes Peak is kind of unique because there's multiple ways to get up it, including a paved road that you can drive all the way up, which, in my opinion, is simply cheating. And (laughs) while I enjoy physical challenges in and of themselves, uh, and I enjoy hiking, and particularly I love hiking mountains, there was something about seeing all these people driving up 
and then complaining about how out of breath they got from going to the overlook to the gift shop that made me just want to make sure they knew that I actually had walked all the way up there. And so I found my mind going, you know, wanting to like hang around the visitor center for longer with my pack and, you know, all sweaty and grimy. I, I wanted to walk through the parking lot on the way down uh, again with my pack so that people would see, oh, wow, he must have hiked up here. I wanted them to know that I'd hiked from the bottom and probably that tells you about everything you need to know about my own heart and uh, own insecurities and issues and self-righteousness, right? I try to be humble. In certain ways, I think I am, not in every way. And I truly just love physical challenges for the sake of them. But when others show up who just drove up to the same place that I'd spent hours hiking, that kind of self-righteousness and pride goes into overdrive. And probably for all of us, there are places in your life where you also struggle with self-righteousness. Where do you find yourself comparing yourself to others, kind of seeing how you rank? Where do you find yourself uh, taking pride in something, and yet that pride so easily can ferment into self-righteousness? It can be all kinds of things, and often it's probably tied to the things that we're good at. It can be how much you help others and serve others. All the things that you do in the church, your generosity, your knowledge of theology— your success, your family, how open-minded you consider yourself to be. Right? All of these things, which are generally good in themselves, can easily become the very things that we become self-righteous about. And our passage is very short, and yet it packs a powerful punch. It's why I wanted to spend just one week just on these couple verses. Because Jesus shows us how easily our service turns into self-righteousness. Jesus pierces right through the shell of something that looks so good and noble and noteworthy. Here is a woman opening her home and showing hospitality and hosting a dinner party for Jesus. And yet Jesus shows, don't be deceived by the outward appearances. Often our good works, the things that we're good at, become the very things that keep us from fully relying on Jesus. Jesus shows that sin doesn't just thrive in a dark alley at the dead of night, but can be alive in a perfectly presented dinner party for Jesus. And so what I want us to remember this morning is simply this. Service easily becomes self-righteousness. Service easily becomes self-righteousness. We're going to get this three ways. First, the two receptions. And then second, those signs of self-righteousness. And then third, the one thing that's needed. So first, two receptions. Jesus, as we've been following him through the book of Luke, is on this long journey through Jerusalem, and yet it's hard to know exactly uh, his itinerary and where he's all going because we don't have a lot of details. But we believe, based on uh, the book of John, that this is the same Mary and Martha that uh, Jesus rose uh, Lazarus, their brother, from the dead. And we know that they live in Bethany, which is a town just a little bit to the east of Jerusalem. And Martha has, as I mentioned, has shown up a few times in the Gospels. And we get the sense that she's the very responsible one. And she's the one who always knows everything about what's going on and has a plan for everything and has a plan for if things don't go according to plan. And she learns that Jesus is coming into town. 
And so she's likely there. She gets word before everybody else, and she's there to greet him and welcome her and invite her into his home for a nice dinner party. And that's one of the first things I want us to note, that it's ironic because the one who welcomes Jesus and shows hospitality ends up being the one that Jesus corrects and even rebukes. But it shows us that how often our strengths and our good works our commendable things, are the things that keep us from Jesus. Your strengths allow you to, in some ways, be dependent on your own, to trust in your own self-ability instead of fully leaning on Christ's sufficiency. So in verse 40, it says that Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. At the end of verse 41, Jesus tells Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. And many commentators here note it seems that Jesus was initially speaking to Martha about, look, Martha, you're trying to cook too many dishes. You're busy building this elaborate feast for me, but you just need one thing. You don't need to cook all these different things. She's busy in the kitchen. And it's likely that they were a wealthier family so that she had plenty of help around the house and she was there kind of orchestrating everything, making sure that all the pots got stirred and she was putting out any fires and she wanted everything to be perfect for Jesus. She wanted this Instagram-worthy meal. And Martha had a sister named Mary. And it says simply that she sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Mary, by contrast, wasn't helping out, but she was just learning from Jesus sitting at his feet. She wanted that bread of life that only he could offer. And there's a few things we learn from this detail. First, we see how Jesus is approving and honoring this woman who sits at his feet as a disciple, learning from him. And this is all the more noteworthy because especially back then in that very traditional culture, Jesus doesn't tell Mary, oh, this is, you know, where the guys are at. You should go back to the kitchen and help prepare all the food and help your sister. But he honors her for sitting at Jesus' feet and learning from him as a disciple. And then there's something symbolic about that language of sitting at Jesus' feet, at the Lord's feet. To sit at Jesus' feet means you are below him. You are submitting your own thoughts and actions to him. You allow your life to be shaped by him instead of trying to shape him into ways that fit into your life. Today, it's it's very common to kind of pick and choose the parts of the Bible that you might like or to get rid of the parts that you don't like, particularly the parts that are offensive to kind of our modern sensibilities and ideas. But that's not sitting at Jesus' feet. That's trying to kind of cut and paste Jesus into something that you like, into a Jesus after your own image. But now you might say, but well, what about all those other parts in the Bible where it's not Jesus' words? Because there's other things. I like Jesus, but other things offend me. And the thing is, we see that Jesus had a very high view of all of Scripture. In John chapter 10, he gets into this debate with the crowd, and in verse 24, Jesus says, It is written in your own scriptures that God said to certain leaders of the people, I say, you are gods. And then Jesus goes on to say, and you know that the scriptures cannot be broken or altered. 
So Jesus is quoting from Psalm 82, the Jewish scriptures, and he's making a point about a single word where it says gods in the plural. And he says scripture cannot be altered, meaning that that very word, gods in the plural, is there intentionally and cannot be tweaked or changed. And so Jesus is saying that scripture, which for him was the entire Old Testament, cannot be altered, even one little word. And so that means to sit at Jesus' feet is to accept all of Scripture, even those parts that make us uncomfortable. And sometimes it's in those tough parts that God has something particularly important to teach us. So we have these two different receptions of Jesus. Let's now move to that second point, looking at those signs of self-righteousness. And these are signs that show up in Martha's strengths, her service and her hospitality. And yet it's so easy for service to turn into self-righteousness. Here's some signs, three signs we see in our passage. The first is in verse 40, where it says, But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She was distracted. We see that Martha isn't able to be present or listen to Jesus because of all the things that she needs to do. Martha's stressed, and that stress is starting to kind of bubble up inside of her and leak out, where she can't sit and rest. She can't sit at Jesus' feet. And it's likely she has this narrative going on in her head. And I say that because of what we see her say to Jesus here shortly. We can imagine it. Doesn't anybody care that Jesus needs to eat? I mean, the food's not just going to make itself. We need to honor Jesus. Doesn't anybody else see that? Am I the only one who cares that Jesus feels welcomed here? And I hope my sister really is enjoying just sitting there listening while I'm doing all the work. And that's that first sign of self-righteousness, that internal frustration, that angst, that irritability where she's maybe short with others because she's upset inside. And she's thinking of herself as the only one who truly cares. Now, probably you felt this in various ways, and maybe you don't necessarily see it as a self-righteousness, but underneath that frustration, that's probably what is there. And you think, well, if I don't do this, no one's going to do it. Where do you find yourself saying things like that or getting irritated at others because they're not doing everything you think they should? And the second sign is in the second half of verse 40. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? This simmering has boiled over in contempt towards her sister. She's left me to do all the work by myself. And you see, if it was true service in honor of God, she would do it with joy as a way to serve those. Oh, I'm glad that these people can sit and enjoy Jesus and I'm going to serve in this way. True service would be done freely, not with kind of this boiling frustration because you feel like you're the only one who cares enough. When do you find yourself getting angry or feeling contempt for those who aren't doing as much as you're doing or aren't serving in the ways that you're serving? And that can so easily be one of these signs of that self-righteousness. And the third sign is that it leads into a frustration with God. Martha blurts out to Jesus, tell her to help me. And right before that, Lord, don't you care? 
Martha is now frustrated because Jesus doesn't seem to care as much as she does. He's not acknowledging all of her work. And I think it's just as much that as it is Mary isn't helping. Probably in Martha's mind, this is how we all work, right? Well, okay, it's okay if Mary's just sitting around and listening, but at least Jesus is going to honor and reward me and point me out and praise me for being the one who's doing all this work. I mean, I'm doing all these things for him. At least he can acknowledge it. But then Jesus doesn't acknowledge it. He doesn't seem to rank Martha above Mary because of everything that she's doing. He, in fact, doesn't seem to care that much. And it's frustrating her. And maybe another way to think about it, it's like Jesus is up on Pike's Peak. And I walk by him in the parking lot and he says hi to me and I say hi to him. And then he keeps walking and he says to a couple from Kansas, wow, you really feel the elevation up here. And then he gets in the car and drives down. And how do I feel frustrated, right? I mean, come on. It's okay that they drove up here, but I really want you to acknowledge that I hiked 13 and a half miles to get up here. Can't you point that out? And that's when your service has turned into self-righteousness. Because underneath those good things that you should be doing for God's glory and freely are actually all these selfish motives of pride and self-glory and wanting your name to be praised. You want God to acknowledge everything that you've done. You want priority status when it comes to having your requests answered with God. You want a better seat at the banquet table than that person who just drove up there. But Jesus doesn't seem to recognize your status. Have you ever felt that way? So many of us, at some point in your life, God will disappoint you, and it will be revealed how so many of the things that you've been doing for him have actually you've been doing for yourself because you thought that he would then do things for you. Right? You serve a lot. You take your faith very seriously. You're incredibly intentional about how you raise your kids and wanting them to know Christ, doing family devotions, memorizing scripture. You know more theology than most people. You're always quick to say yes, to sign up to serve or to fill any needs within the church. But then something doesn't work out according to your plan. You see one of your kids walking away from the faith. Your spouse is unfaithful to you. Your family that you've worked so hard to have look just right starts to fall apart. You lose your job or your retirement. You get cancer at 50 or are diagnosed with a terminal illness. And you get mad at God. He's like, God, I've been doing all of these things for you. I gave up so much. I had all these things that I could have done. I could have had so much fun like all those other people, but I said no because I was trying to serve you. I spent so much time hiking up Pikes Peak instead of driving because I thought that was our deal. I do this stuff for you, and then you would do these things for me. I kept my part of the bargain. Why aren't you keeping yours? And in those moments, when you're frustrated because God isn't following your agenda, you see that so much of what you've done isn't out of love for God, but because you want God to owe you something. You think God owes you something. 
You've been slaving away, building this castle of self-righteousness that you can point to and it makes you feel better than others, even if you'd never say it. You can look at it and say, look at all that I've done for God. And now it's God's turn to do something for me. And this leads us into our third point, the one thing that matters. So Jesus responds to Martha. Martha. Martha, he he says her name twice as a sign of care and tenderness and love. She might be annoyed at him, but he doesn't lose his patience with her. Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Indeed, only one. It it seems like Jesus is saying, Martha, we don't need an elaborate dinner. Just a a simple one-pot meal would be good enough. But then he adds this next thing. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Suddenly, Jesus flips the tables on Martha. It's good you're showing this hospitality. It's important to note, Jesus doesn't rebuke Martha for being a good host, right? This passage makes all of us who like to plan ahead and be organized kind of uncomfortable because it's like, what is, you know, what is Jesus doing here? And he's not saying that it's wrong to do those things. That was one of the ways that Martha could glorify God. But she'd taken it too far. She started trusting in that as the way that Jesus then would then love her or honor her. Her very strengths became her downfall. And in being so busy, she didn't realize that she also needed to feed from Jesus more than she needed to make sure Jesus had a good dinner. And that's the danger of being so busy, of always being quick to say yes, of doing all these things, that you forget more than all the things that you do, you first need to receive and feed from God. You need Him more than anything else. And that's a danger for us in the church, right? Because who is Martha here? Martha's, you know, that member of the 20% in the church who does 80% of the work. (laughs) She's the one who volunteers in all kinds of ways. She's the one or he's the one that is active in all these different things. She's the best volunteer, the most reliable, the one you can always count on to say yes, and yet Jesus shows she's also walking down the wrong path. She's missed the whole reason for all of it. Just because you're serving a lot, doing a lot for Jesus, following all of his rules, doesn't mean you're on the right track. In fact, all of the things that you could be doing could actually be keeping you from sitting at Jesus' feet and trusting in him alone. You're too busy preparing meals for others that you never feed from Jesus yourself. And one of the reasons we do this, there's a couple, but one of them is because we think kind of intuitively, well, but God likes this when I do this. God kind of wants this from me. God needs something from me. Now, we might not put it that way, but we tend to think that, you know, the more I do for God, the more likely he is to do things for me, which in the end is just saying, I'll scratch God's back, he'll scratch mine. Right? It's a kind of manipulative, it's a business-type relationship. And the reason why we think that is because that's how we are as people. That even if someone you don't like gives you a Chick-fil-A gift card, well, regardless of their motives, you have 
a gift card that you can go use to buy a tasty chicken sandwich, and that will benefit you and make you happy, right? You don't care about their motives because they still, the gifts of others still provide value for ourselves. This is what actually makes it so hard in the church, right? There are people in the church that you know need to get better involved in the church, and yet at the same time, there are people that are so involved in the church that it's actually harming their spiritual good. But we still need people to help with the kids and make coffee, so it's hard to say, you know what? Stop serving, because we need that benefit. But God doesn't. And that's why he cares so much about the motives of your heart, more than what you end up doing or not doing for him. God is completely self-sufficient. He doesn't need a Chick-fil-A gift card, right? As we heard in the kids' message, he can snap his fingers and build the Chick-fil-A in heaven if he wanted to. He doesn't need volunteers to make coffee. He can turn water into wine. And that means that God is not as impressed with all the things that you do to serve him as you want to think he is. That he is actually looking straight through that into the depths of your heart and asking, why are you doing this? What's the motive? What's your heart? And if your heart's not right, he recognizes it's not really a gift for him. Jonathan Edwards writes, if God were in need of all these things, they might have value to him in themselves, considered independently of the motives of the heart that led to their being offered. You see what he's saying? That what does God care about? Your motives, your heart, because the material stuff, the things you do doesn't matter. He doesn't need it. So he looks at your motives. Why is this person doing it? And that's why Jesus rebukes the person who on the outside looks like she's doing the right thing, serving and being hospitable. And then he praises the person who's sitting at Jesus' feet and learning. From the outside, one person looks like she's truly serving, and the other person looks like she's a bit selfish. From, from God's perspective, he sees some seeds of self-righteousness, and he sees a heart of love, and he delights in Mary's heart of love for him. Is love motivating what you do? Again, Jonathan Edwards writes, There are many that make a profession and show of religion, and some that do many of the outward things which it requires. And possibly they may think that they have done and suffered much for God and His service, but the great question is, has the heart been sincere in it all? What are the motives for what you do? for how you serve in the church, for when you serve others, for when you do something for God? Is it because you simply love Jesus? Or is it because it gives you a sense of pride, a sense of superiority? Even if you wouldn't tell anyone else about it, you're always kind of in your own heart, ranking yourself compared to everybody else. And hey, as long as I stay up in the top 20%, I'm happy. Do you secretly believe that doing all these things is going to make it more likely that God is going to do the things that your heart desires? Or do you kind of secretly believe that God must be ranking me higher than these people as well? I mean, yeah, we're all Christians, but he probably likes me more than them because look at all that I'm doing. Look how seriously I take my faith. 
But when that's what's in our heart, we're not truly loving God. You're trying to manipulate God. And God sees that right away. He's not tricked. If you truly are serving God out of love, you won't be bitter when you see others doing less than you are. You won't be judgmental and irritable towards those who don't take things as seriously as you do. And you won't react in anger towards God when he doesn't live up to his end of your supposed bargain. One of my favorite psalms is is Psalm 73, which is my favorite because it gets right at the heart of what we're talking about. The psalmist starts off kind of looking at the world and he sees all these people, particularly evil people who don't care about God, and their lives are better than his. They don't seem to have the problems that everybody else does. They don't seem to suffer as much as he's suffering, and yet they don't care about God. They mock God even. And it leads him to cry out in verse 13, did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. He's got that self-righteousness that we all have. One day, we all will ask that same question about our faith. God, is it worth it? These people don't care about you and their lives are better and my life stinks and you aren't answering any of my prayers. What good did following God bring me? I gave up so much for you. But then the psalmist realizes in verse 21 that my heart was so bitter and I was so torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. And for how many of us is that true of our own hearts? in the things that you so dearly want and have asked for, and yet God doesn't seem to be doing anything about, and you're getting embittered because of all the things you think you've done for him, you're all torn up inside. You're angry with God for how things have turned out. You're frustrated because he doesn't seem to give you the life that you've kind of planned on, and you see others who don't care at all about God, and they just skate through life. And that anger... Is poisoning our hearts. And the solution is how the psalm continues. He realizes God will make everything right in the end. And right now, I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail, and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. And that's what God wants for us, from us. To want him more than anything else. To love him for who he is. To love him because he's worthy. And this is all the more true for those of us who know Jesus. And don't forget Jesus' tenderness. Here Martha comes up all upset, ready to let Jesus have it, because he's not doing his part of the bargain. And what does Jesus do in response? Martha. Martha. He doesn't get angry at her. He calls her gently to see that he is who she needs. And it's comforting that God doesn't need anything from you. Because that means Jesus didn't die for you to forgive your sins because you had anything to offer him. 
And he wants you to finally realize that. We can kind of agree to that, but you don't realize that in your heart of hearts. He wants you to realize, he wants me to realize that, you know, he won't love me more if I hike up Pikes Peak instead of driving up it. He won't love you more if you cook a great meal for him instead of just giving hamburger helper <laughs> or live a whole life of strict self-discipline and self-denial. That doesn't change the needle of his love for you. He loves you because he chose to love you. He chooses to love undeserving, always messing up sinners. And when he was looking at the people that he would choose to love, he didn't look out and say, who's awesome at life? Who's really performing right now? I'm going to love the winners. No, he chose to love the losers. And he didn't start loving you because he saw you were doing awesome. And that means he's not going to stop loving you if you're not doing awesome right now. And Jesus didn't enter into a bargain with you where he says, all right, well, I know John was screwed up from the beginning, so I'll forgive him, let him start over, and then I'll give him 75% of his righteousness, but he's got to bring that other 25%, or else you know, he's getting kicked out. No, God always and forever supplies you with 100% of Christ's righteousness so that God, when he looks down at you, warts and all, he sees the beauty of Jesus, and that never changes. And so what God wants is not for you to try to contribute to your righteousness. That's just self-righteousness. It's not worth anything in his eyes. He wants you. He wants you to love him with your entire heart and soul and mind and strength. He wants your humility. He wants your acknowledgement of all these ways that you're trying to earn his favor through your self-righteousness that it's making you just torn up and bitter inside. And he wants you to free you from that burden so that you can actually live with a lightness in life and joy, realizing that Jesus has actually paid it all. And now I get to live as a free person, a free man, a free woman. And to discover the joy at sitting at Jesus' feet and realizing he truly is enough. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to realize this, because every one of us in our own ways, we struggle with this, Lord. We're constantly ranking ourselves. Lord, we rank ourselves because we want to see that we're doing better than others. We rank ourselves because we're convinced we're a lot worse than others. And I pray, Lord, that you would just free us from all of these rankings Bring us to repentance and show us that Jesus is enough and to let us live with true freedom. We pray this all in his name. Amen.